got a question for you. If you're anything like me, you've probably wondered this in the past. What happens to people who die without a chance to hear and therefore respond to the gospel? What happens to people who die without ever hearing the good news of Jesus? What about little babies who die without hearing the gospel? Or To take a question that concerned a lot of the early Christians, what about the people who died before the time of Jesus, who by definition couldn't have heard the good news of his salvation? What happens to those folks? I have a second question for you, and it's related to it, although it's a bit more overtly theological. It's this. What happened to Jesus between the crucifixion and the resurrection? In other words, we believe that on Friday he was crucified and on Sunday he was raised from the dead. But what happened to Saturday? Where was he on Saturday? I want to look at those two questions today as we look through this next very bizarre line in what's called the Apostles' Creed. We're in a sermon series called Echo, and we're looking at some of the basic doctrines of the faith. You know, in the early church, it took sometimes up to three years before you could be baptized as a Christian because you had to go through a long period of training. A long period, and the fancy word is catechesis. Catechesis is the word for the training of a Christian. And the word catechesis is actually related to the Greek word for echo. In other words, what the early Christians were asking themselves to do was to be able to hear and then repeat the basic truths of the faith. Now, there's something called the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in certain traditional uh, church environments, maybe you're familiar with it. Other times, maybe you're not. The Apostles' Creed is, is very ancient. It's like a summary or even a syllabus of the faith. It regulates the church's teaching. It has roots way back into the second century in Rome. And we've been working through different lines of the Apostles' Creed. And today, we're at a line that if you don't find strange or bizarre, there's probably something wrong with you today. It's this line. He descended to the dead. The Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. In some older translations, it says uh, he descended into hell. But descended to the dead is a better and more accurate translation. What the heck does that mean? That is a strange phrase. And you'll be, you'll be in good company to know that for the last thousand years, lots of Christians have found that to be a very strange phrase. But, but this is what I find so interesting. The creed is just the basic summary of the faith. In fact, on the playing field of the faith, it's just like the foul line. The creed talks nothing about baptism, about Holy Communion, about what it means to have faith, about how one becomes a Christian. It doesn't talk about any of those things. It's just the basics. So if the early church thought it was appropriate to include this line in the creed, he descended to the dead, it strikes me that you and I ought to be studying it and figuring out why did they include it and what does it have to say to you and me. And that's what I want to do today. And it's appropriate that with this very strange line in the creed, he descended to the dead, the passage of scripture I'm going to preach on today is among the strangest in all of scripture. In fact, Martin Luther thought that this was the strangest and most obscure passage in the whole Bible. It comes from 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter is traditionally attributed to a man named Peter, Peter the Apostle. And it's a letter written from Rome to what was it at those days called Asia Minor, which today we just call Turkey, to some early Christian churches in Turkey. And these people were about to undergo suffering. The political climate was changing. It was dangerous to be a Christian. And the letter of 1 Peter is meant to encourage 
these early Christians. Here we are, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 18 to 22, and then chapter 4, verse 6. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And in that state, he went and made proclamation to the, un- to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And then chapter 4, verse 6, skipping a few verses. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. May God add his richest blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Let's pray. Lord, send your spirit on this place, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And Lord, take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. And take our hearts, Lord, and light them up on fire for you and for your world. Amen. What a strange passage of scripture. What Peter says is, listen. The spirit raised Jesus from the dead, but that same spirit was with him in the place of the dead when he preached to the imprisoned spirits. And then it says in verse 6, and that's the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. If you don't find that strange or puzzling, you're not really listening. It's a very strange piece of scripture. But coupled with that phrase from the creed in this passage from 1 Peter and a few others, I actually think that it's telling us something that's very important. You and I have a tendency, in fact, the American church has a tendency to move very quickly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. But with the creed and what 1 Peter is telling us, we need to slow down and pay attention because something important is happening. Now, the general descent of Jesus up to this point, the general direction of Jesus up to this point has been one of descent. It starts like this. In glory... John 1.1 famously says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, without him not one thing was made that has been made. So from way back before time, the second person, the Trinity, has always existed in the communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Christ was in glory. But what does the creed tell us? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Descent. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Descent. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. died and was buried. Descent. Now, of course, the message of the faith is about the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to get there. The creed goes on to say, 
He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Returning to glory. But between the crucifixion and being raised from the dead, there was, so to speak, Saturday. What happened on Saturday? You'll remember, of course, the passage I preached on a few weeks ago from Philippians chapter 2. When Paul says that Jesus, though he was of the same essence with God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage, but he emptied himself. All the way down to the point of death on a cross. And then Paul goes on to say, therefore God has exalted him, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it's the end of the earth part that I find very fascinating. See, we don't think like this anymore, but in the ancient world, they thought of kind of a three-tiered cosmology. You have the heavens, whatever that means, you have earth, and then you have under the earth. Now, what's important is not the actual geography of that. They didn't understand what happens to people when they die any more than we do. But what's important is the phraseology, I think, that according to Paul, Every knee is going to bow to Jesus in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And it's on Saturday, according to the creed in this great passage in 1 Peter, we learn that the bottom of Christ's ascent was not the crucifixion, but was his descent to the dead. In other words, according to the faith, Christ went all the way down, as low as one can possibly go. And I think this is great news, and I think it means a lot to you and me right now today. First, it means this. Regardless of your circumstances, and regardless of any circumstance, there is no place where God cannot be at work. There is no situation beyond redemption. There is no marriage so bitter no financial situation so straightened, no war so violent, no place so helpless that God cannot be at work. I wonder today, if you're here today and you just have a heavy, heavy burden, can I just tell you, I don't believe that God cannot work in where you are. See, according to the story of the scriptures and the summary of the creed, Christ went all the way down. There is no place where God can't work. What would it look like if, if the church really believed that? I had a circumstance last week that I had been praying for, and it happened. And I have to tell you, I didn't really believe it would happen when I was praying for it. Have you ever prayed like that? God, bring peace in the Middle East, and you don't believe it will happen. Lord, bring harmony into this marriage. God, work in that orphan's life. Lord, fix this or that situation. Free that person from addiction. I'll pray prayers like that, but I have to be honest with you, often they're half-hearted because I don't really believe God will do it. Because it seems like I believe that there's some situations beyond the power of God. According to the creed, that's not true. He descended to the dead. Whatever that means, wherever that is, Christ was there. What would it look like tomorrow morning when you got up if you really believed there was no situation where God couldn't work? What kind of boldness would you exercise in your prayers and in your words? 
Let me tell you something. I, I believe that even in a city like Dallas, if a few hundred of us had that kind of boldness, it would change the fabric of the city. In fact, that's the kind of boldness that the early church has, and that's why they defeated the Roman Empire, a bunch of ragtag fishermen. Persecuted, but they believed that there was no situation. You know where this, for me, is most practical is in certain people's lives. I do this all the time, and I, I need to repent of it. I see certain people in the church, in the community, and I think, that's just how they're going to be. That's just, that's just their story. What would it look like if in all my encounters with people, I really believe that God could take their life and do something incredible with it? First of all, can you see how that would level out all the distinctions we make between people? I wouldn't judge between a rich person and a poor person, an addict and somebody's healthy. I wouldn't make any of those dis distinctions because I believe there's no life that God can't work in. There's no situation so black that the light of Christ can't come to it. Maybe today you're here and that's all you needed to hear. If so, I pray that God will let that truth take root in your heart. But not only that. It's not only the case that there's no situation where God can't be at work. We also have this strange information that 1 Peter is giving us about Christ preaching to the imprisoned spirits. Let me first of all start by saying that I don't know exactly what that means. And nobody else does either. It's a very puzzling passage, as I told you Martin Luther thought. But I have an ind inclination about what it might mean. See, we like, people in the church and outside the church, we like neat, like neat edges to things. We like our theology to fit neatly. We like to understand or pretend we understand exactly where people end up, exactly what happens to people when they die, etc. But the truth is, none of us has ever been to death. We don't know exactly how God will work. Now, a few weeks, in a few weeks in the future, we'll preach through this great phrase in the creed that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. So we're going to talk about judgment at that point. And I just need to tell you here, I don't believe that God forces salvation on anybody. In fact, I, I, I think I'm in the tradition that says that hell is made up of people who are choosing to be there, as perverse and as broken as that is. But I do believe that God desires to save all people. That's also part of our tradition. I believe God desires to save all people. And if the God who saw fit to leave glory, to come and be born in the filth of a stable, to be ripped and beaten on the cross, to be crucified and to descend to the dead. If that's the nature of our God, I don't think you and I need to worry about God being just or loving towards his creatures. So that whole thing that so many of us love to worry about, well, what happens to people who have never heard about the good news of Jesus? Although that's an interesting question, I'd say that for a lot of us it's just a distraction. We can put it to the side and say, whatever happens, I'm going to trust God is just there. And there's certainly some indications in Scripture that somehow God allows the gospel to be heard by those folks too. So the question is not really, well, what happens to people who die? Somebody who's born in the middle of India never hears the gospel. Somebody who's born in the middle of Pakistan, a baby who dies. Let's trust those souls to God. The question, and a better question, is what are you and I doing with the gospel that we've heard? See, I wonder sometimes if a lot of us like these intellectual discussions because it's a way of keeping the gospel impersonal, away from us. See, if, if, you're, if, if you can just talk about what does God do with this or that person, 
it's a way of never turning it and directing it on yourself. I don't believe at all the intellectual questions are not important. And I just want you to say here, if you're here today and you don't know what you believe, I hope this church can be a place of honesty for you. I'm not interested in, in telling people not to think. But I do think that often the intellectual questions are just the, just the, the entryway, just the foyer. I don't think they get you all the way there. In fact, sometimes I think they can be a stumbling block or an excuse. So better than worrying about somebody else and how God will handle that person, better than worrying about the faithful people who lived before the time of Christ or people who live now in the jungles of the Amazon who've never heard the gospel, why don't we leave that to God and worry about what you and I are doing with the gospel we've heard? Because by definition, if you're here today, you've heard about the good news of Jesus and you've been offered this incredible gracious gift of salvation. So the question is, how are you availing yourself of it? But there's one final thing that I think this great and puzzling phrase in the creed means. He descended to the dead. I think it means that Christ has ultimate victory over all things. Again, Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Christ is the ultimate victor. That's what this phrase of the creed means. And if we remove this phrase because it seems unusual or puzzling to us, we're going to miss the fact that even in the place of the dead, wherever that is, Christ is victorious. Now, in the early church, they had this theory, and they called it the fish hook theory. Maybe you've never heard of it. According to some of these early Christians, Christ was like the bait on a cosmic fish hook, and the devil swallowed it up. In fact, Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. A very interesting phrase. And in the early church, according to this fish hook theory, the devil took the bait and took the crucified Christ and brought him right to the place of the dead, thereby ensuring that death would be defeated. It's a great phrase, and it's that theory of what's called the atonement, the fishhook theory that you see working in C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You'll remember that the witch kills the lion and thinks she's won, but the very act of killing the lion who gave his life up sacrificially undoes the power of the witch. Now, these are, these, these are just ways of trying to express an almost inexpressible truth, but it's a great, it's a great idea. Christ is some sort of undercover secret agent who has the, the depths of evil are crowing in victory, he himself is undoing their very power. What would it look like if we really believed in that kind of victorious Savior? We would have no fear. We wouldn't worry about things like finances and jobs. We trust that if God can be victorious over death, we had nothing else to fear. In fact, death really is the ultimate fear, is it not? It's what animates our society, and boy, we have a culture that's so afraid of death. We don't know how to talk about it, despite the fact that we continue to live in it. See, for us, death is a dark place. If you've ever lost a loved one, or if you today, maybe you're on the verge of death, maybe you're sick. If you've ever lost a loved one, there's a sense that death is a dark place. 
But according to this great phrase in the creed and the tradition of the church and the message of the scriptures, death is a dark place and right into the darkness was where Christ went. And he busted out the other side and now light comes into death from the backside of it. There is no place where God's light can't shine. Maybe today you just needed to hear that. Maybe you have, you've lost a loved one and you've been worried. You don't understand death. It seems an impenetrable barrier, and it is to you and I right now. But even that barrier was broken by the descent of Christ. In fact, there's this great place in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, Where, O death, is now your victory? Where, O death, is now your sting? An early hymn of the church. They knew that because Christ, who had come from glory, who had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried, and descended to the dead, they knew that Christ had gone all the way down, and therefore even death itself has no more power over those who put their faith in the crucified and risen Son of God. I wonder today where your faith is. I remember... It was uh, 11 years ago. I was in New York City on September 11th. I've shared this with a few of you before. I was going to college there, and we could see the billowing smoke from our windows uptown. I remember that evening talking with a girl on my floor who didn't believe. And I said that, of course, the, the whole thing made me sick, and it worried me. But I wasn't particularly afraid to die. Now, I'm not a particularly faithful or courageous person, but that was an honest assessment of my heart at the time. And she said, and I'll never forget that, she said, that's because you have faith. And it just struck me that that was true. It doesn't mean I want to die. It doesn't mean that there's not a little bit of fear and trepidation. I don't want to leave now. I don't want to leave my church. I don't want to leave my wife and my son and my family. I like going to the state fair and getting corny dogs. <laughs> Life is a good thing. And the Christian response to life should be one of gratefulness and just realizing how sweet life is. But when the time comes for me and for each of us to die... My prayer is that we would have the faith to believe that if we put our life in trust in the crucified and risen Son of God, ultimately even death itself holds nothing for us to fear. I wonder if you have that kind of faith today. Now, the gospel message, of course, does not end here. trumpet sound of the gospel message is the resurrection of Jesus. But for the resurrection to mean what it needs to mean, Christ has to go all the way down. In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his great book, Miracles. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver. First reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, 
then gone with a splash. Vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. And he touches the bottom and pushes off. And then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till he suddenly breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. Amen. Please stand. Let's affirm our faith together in that kind of God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. God, in this we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, these are stories and ideas that are almost beyond expression. And certainly, Lord, seem beyond belief. And yet, Lord, the message of the church is that this actually happened. So, Lord, I pray in my life that I'd put my trust in the crucified one who came all the way down only to go all the way up again, holding the whole ruined thing in his hand. Lord, I pray that for the people here today, we would have no fear. That we'd have no sense that we are in a hell because, Lord, you've been right to hell and have come back. That we'd have no burden that you can't take, Lord, and no fear, even the fear of death, from which the sting of you can't remove. Lord, we pray that the spirit of the risen Christ would come and dwell in us and in this place. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.